You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast with Pastor Brent Gerard. In Focus Church is a multi ethnic, multi generational church in Evans, Georgia, with a mission to love God, love people, and reach the world. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you are listening, and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at In Focus Church. We hope this message encourages you and leaves you feeling challenged to see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. My name is Carla Gerard, and I am so excited to be able to give the word to you this morning. Thank you, Matthew. You think I'm going to sweat? I got a sweat towel? Awesome. I don't plan to sweat, but I might sweat. Um, Matthew's about to bring out my object lesson for this morning, and I'm so excited to show you one of my, um, here it comes. This is boxes and boxes of letters. Thank you so much. So letters, handwritten letters, typed letters, texted letters. I love to get letters, but my favorite kind of letter to receive is a handwritten note from someone that cares about me. And I keep them. I mean, this is hundreds of letters, hundreds of things from some of you in this room, some people who aren't in this room, kids, adults alike. And I have many more where that came from. I keep letters in my car. I keep letters on my dresser. I keep letters on my desk. I keep letters on my mirror. Anywhere where I can be reminded of encouragement that people are sending me. And when I receive these precious words, I keep them. My mom wrote me a letter every single day of my freshman year of college. There was never a day that I went to my mailbox in my dorm that I did not have a letter waiting from my mom. She penned, she, she hand wrote me a letter every single day of my freshman year of school. Now, what you might be thinking is that I have an addiction to the written word, because I do. I also potentially might have a hoarding problem with paper because, you know, we all live in homes where we probably don't have enough space to store every letter that's ever been written to us. But these are the ones that that made it here. But I also think there's a point to be made here. There's value in words that someone takes time to communicate to us. And that's what we've been studying in this Dear Church sermon series. We have been studying the seven letters to the churches in Revelation. Now, these are the letters that were penned by John, but sent from Jesus and given to each of these churches. And as a reminder, I want us to remember that these letters are not written to us, but they are written for us. There is something for us to learn and glean from the message in Revelation. Now, most of the letters took on a consistent pattern of commendation, something encouraging, a criticism, a place where the church could could correct, and then a recommendation. But the seventh letter to the church of Laodicea is going to be a little bit different. For all that we heard last week that the letter to the church of Philadelphia was encouraging her, there is no commendation for the church of Laodicea because there's nothing for her to to be commended about. 
Let's look at the text together. If you can, turn in your Bibles to Revelation 3, 14 through 22. If you have a paper Bible, get it out. If you have a paper Bible at home, I'd encourage you to bring it to church and to have it when we study the Word of God together. But if you happen to forget your paper Bible, which is probably what happened and why you don't have one this morning, the words will be on the screen. Revelation 3, 14. Write to the angel of the Lord in Laodicea. Thus says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich. I have become wealthy and need nothing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I advise to you, buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, white clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed, and ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be zealous and repent. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, I'm going to work a little bit backwards this morning. He who has an ear, let him hear. What does this mean? Every single letter, all seven of them end with this instruction and this recommendation. What does it mean to have an ear that can hear? At first when I read this, and I've been reading the Bible for a long time. I've known Jesus since I was a kid. But I had a different hearing this time when I heard this. I used to hear it as he who has spiritual ears, let him hear. Or similar to he who has spiritual eyes, let him see. Like to those who had already had their hearts opened by the Lord. But the original intent of the language in this passage is not that. It's literally, he who has ears, let him hear. So to every listener, let him hear. Now, most of us in here know that there's a difference between hearing and listening, right? If you're a parent in here, I bet you have said this to your children at some point. I know that you might be hearing me, but I'm pretty sure that you're not listening to me. I'm pretty sure you heard me, but I'm guessing that you didn't listen because usually the action doesn't line up with supposedly what they were listening to. Or what about that distracted kind of listening that a lot of us have where there's no focus, where we're like, yeah, 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 you know, I'm listening, I'm listening, all while we're probably doing you know, this right here. What if we have a phone in our hands, like I just said? Or what if, what if we can't go five minutes without having our phone in our hands? I had, I had considered asking y'all to put your phones down this morning, but then I knew that most of us, because we'd forgotten our paper Bible, I knew that most of us wouldn't be able to put our phones down. I wanted you to be able to read the Bible. What about that kind of listening where we're forming our answer or our defense without even listening to the one who is talking to us? He who has an ear, let him listen. Eugene Peterson says this, listening is the common task of the church. And the hope for the listener of the Revelation letters is not that they are hearing sound, 
but that they are listening with listening ears. And that is my hope for us this morning. And what has been my hope for this whole series that we were listening to what was being said, applying it to our life, and then faithfully responding to what the Lord has been speaking to us. Eugene Peterson goes on to say, and this quote will be on the screen, listening is a spiritual act far more than an acoustical function. Expensive and sophisticated amplification equipment does not improve listening. It only makes, it, it only makes hearing possible. Because listening so frequently decays into mere hearing, and because there can be no church apart from listening, the last word spoken to each church is he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Now, for many of us in here, or I might just be speaking for myself, I seem to have a threshold of how many times I want to repeat what I'm saying. Anybody else with me? Like you just don't want to repeat and repeat and repeat? Because what can be discouraging is when we speak something to someone repeatedly and we're ignored once again. I'm not speaking of the skill of listening because I know that has to be developed. I know that's a skill that has to be developed. What I'm speaking of is when advice is solicited or invited and the wisdom and the recommendation is given, but there is no change in the action. Eventually we, or I'll just say I, wear down in my patience and love toward that listener. When I'm hoping that if it's been invited, that it will be listened to, applied, and there will be a faithful response. But not God. God is relentless in his pursuit of us. He is relentless in his love for us. And he is relentless in his, in his desire for us to hear and listen and know the truth and walk in obedience. He who has an ear, let him listen with listening ears. So there's a scary truth. It's in Proverbs 14, 12. It says this, there is a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way to death. We might think we know the plans for our life. We might think we know best of A and B and we make this choice without asking God. We might think that he's called us into a certain direction where it may actually be quite the opposite. So I ask you this morning, how are you or how have you been listening how have you responded to the last eight weeks? Have you been listening with listening ears to know what is actually being said and what God is asking you to do? Have you heard the Spirit's direction, sensed his conviction, and responded with repentance? Or have you just sat in here week after week just hearing noise? Not because noise is being projected, but because that's what your ears are tuned to doing, hearing instead of listening. Peterson would say to us again, if the divine word is primary, which it is, then human hearing is essential, which it is. But that we hear is required and the way we hear is significant. He who has an ear, let him listen with listening ears. My hope today is that we do listen with listening ears. My hope is that we find ourselves hearing God's voice through what he teaches us this morning. So let's pray. Lord, I just ask that you would give us listening ears this morning, that no matter what we've walked into this place dealing with or feeling or sensing, that your voice would be the loudest voice in our ears this morning, that you would supersede all the lies, 
all the personal agendas, all the preconceived notions about what you would say and you would speak directly to our heart. Increase our faith, God, to hear your voice this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Awesome. So what's going on at Laodicea? So let's put our listening ears on and let's take a look at the scripture a little bit line by line, but I'm asking God to help us connect the dots from this letter to our hearts and our own lives. Here's a brief history lesson about Laodicea. Laodicea is the southernmost of the seven churches that are uh, spoken to in the seven letters. It is in what is now modern day Turkey. Laodicea was one of the greatest commercial and financial centers of the ancient world. The city was known to be self-sufficient and prosperous, so much so that after an earthquake devastated the land, they did not want imperial assistance. They did not take any help from the state, if you will. Laodicea was a commercial center, had a successful textile industry, and an influential medical industry. Now, the church was not immune to the prideful self-sufficiency that marked the city. They themselves were known for their complacency and indifference. Their witness was tainted with self-righteousness and hypocrisy. So much so that there is no commending to this congregation. It should be known that this congregation was also not small. This was a large church. They have been seduced by the world and lured away from their love for God and people. And they have grown comfortable with the world and forgotten that they are exiles. What should have been foreign to them had become like home. They felt quite comfortable in the world. Now, each of these seven letters is a call to faithfulness and a call to love. Each letter contains a hope for the believers to conquer and overcome, and there is a reward for it. But what happens when we allow the world to lure us away from the things of God? We're going to look at three different points this morning. First, indifference and ineffectiveness. We're often blinded by this, blinded to this, I will say. We think we might be effective. We think we might be passionately excited and passionate in our pursuit of God, but we're blinded to it when we are not. Legalism or rule following always leads to a state of rebellion and a state of deception. We see this throughout the canon of scripture from the children of Israel in Genesis all the way to the church in Galatia. Paul even said to the church in Galatia, oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? When you once were zealous and passionate about your faith that Jesus and Jesus alone could bring you to salvation, that your works didn't mean anything except a faithful response to what had already been done for you. What has happened to you, Galatia? What has happened to you where now you're applying rule following and you're putting that on other people as well? Who has bewitched you, you foolish Galatians? They had grown indifferent and ineffective in their witness. The passion and zeal that once set their hearts, or I'll say the passion and zeal that once sets our hearts on fire for God gets replaced with hypocrisy and duplicity. That's what we see in the Laodiceans and possibly might see that in our own hearts this morning. One of the most misunderstood scriptures comes from Revelation 3. I'm going to be honest, I've heard many um, sermons on this passage, and I also have misapplied this passage to my own heart when it comes to lukewarmness. I probably have also encouraged this misapplication in other people. But although the sermons may have been effective, 
in calling someone up to passion, the intent of this text in Revelation 3 outweighs, I'm sorry, it weighs much heavier than a challenge for passionate faith. Jesus always had piercing words to frauds. He always had piercing words to frauds. We see this in the gospel accounts, and that's what we see here in the letter to the Laodiceans. Verse 15, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. So Laodicea was located geographically between Colossae and Heropolis. And here's the deal with the waters from both of these places that eventually ran to Laodicea. The waters in Colossae, she sat near the cold water streams of the Lycus River. In Heropolis, there were hot boiling springs that flowed into the hillsides to the river and they left behind mineral rich deposits, beautiful for the eye to look at. But by the time these cold waters from Colossae and boiling waters from Heropolis reach Laodicea, they are now lukewarm. They're muddy, murky, and nasty to the taste, but the people had grown accustomed to it. This was their water source. This is what they drank of. The church, the Laodicean church would know exactly what Jesus was trying to communicate in the letter to them. The cold water was refreshing and the hot water had medicinal purposes, but the water in their aqueducts was lukewarm. The Laodiceans were no longer refreshing to those around them, nor were they bringing healing to those around them like the hot springs. And so God says, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. These were words of judgment. This is a statement of judgment. Now, the text does not mean what you may have heard in the past, that God would rather us be on fire for him or cold and indifferent to him. Because if you think about that, that's ridiculous. It's ridiculous that God would be saying, I mean, I'd rather you be hot or cold because of course God wants us white hot on fire for him. That's his intention for us. He would never say, I mean, I hope you approach me indifferently and that your witness becomes ineffective, you know, but if you, if you have to choose one or the other, I'm just hoping you choose one or the other. That's not the intent of this uh, Revelation 3 passage, but you may have heard that before. This text is speaking to the desired effective witness of the people. But for the Laodiceans, this was speaking to their damaged witness because of their indifference to God. God was making a point that they were neither refreshing or useful. They were like the murky water that they had grown accustomed to drinking. And he was going to vomit them out of his mouth. This is not an exclamation of disgust. He wasn't disgusted with them but he was bringing his judgment to them. And the good news, and I'll repeat this later on as well, the judgment of God comes with mercy. The Judgment of God comes with mercy. And that is what he is saying to them. You see for us as well, there is nothing, there's just about nothing more damaging for our witness and our holiness and our love than indifference. This is not the sudden and obvious destruction that comes from an attack or an assault that you can see coming towards you, that you can anticipate and brace for. This is a picture of the slow and calculated damage that comes from the slow leak of passion and zeal when moving towards the danger of indifference. You don't even necessarily see it coming. This is a blind spot, if you will. 
It's the offense here and the gossip there. It's the critical attitude toward the church and backbiting approach toward brothers and sisters. It is constantly criticizing and refusing to see the beauty in the body of Christ, but constantly refusing to see the criticisms that need to be necessary in the mirror when we look at ourselves. It's refusing to see our own faults. It's the unforgiveness and unwillingness to walk in emotionally healthy relationships while only embracing finger pointing and backbiting. It's fill in the blank, any sin that you find yourself in, having sex outside of marriage, spending your money in the wrong way, withholding your finances from God, not being kind or loving your neighbor, and the list goes on and on. These are the things that draw us away into indifference. It is aligning ourselves with the world more than we align ourselves with the word. And when we do this, when we live in indifference, our witness becomes ineffective. So second, what happens when we allow the world to lure us away from the things of God? Number two, spiritual blindness. Says this in verse 17, for you say, I'm rich. I have become wealthy and need nothing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. The Laodiceans were unable to hear. They were unable to see. They were performing all of the religious tasks necessary and playing the game of church. But in the end for them, and we know for us, it leaves us in isolation and bitterness. The spiritually blind person looks one way on Sundays and another way Monday to Saturday. It's the ultimate hypocrite. And here's what I think, that even in the midst, amidst the deception of the hypocrite, I believe that in the beginning, the hypocrite knows what they are and they know what they're doing. But as they give themselves over to it more and more, the heart becomes calloused and seared which is a super scary place to be. We see this in the book of Amos. The reluctant prophet of social justice delivers the same message to the people of God over and over. He says this in essence, turn from your wicked ways of empty religious and legalistic practices. God wants nothing to do with your worship because it's empty. You continue to mistreat people around you and mishandle the word of God and I will not receive your offerings. That was the message from many of the Old Testament prophets to the children of God. They had taken their position and privilege and allowed the world to lure them to a state of indifference and hypocrisy, and they were blind to it. Their exclamation was, I need nothing. I've got it all. Where Jesus was saying to them, no, actually, you're naked and poor and pitiful and blind to your state of being. Now, recently, we were in South Africa at our global conference that happens every three years. It's called the Go, Go Conference. And there was over 5,000 delegates that were there. And one morning, we had a prayer meeting, and it was amazing. We've never done this as a global family with over 5,000 people in one prayer meeting, which was quite a cacophony of sound, if you want to talk about hearing and listening. And I began to, in this one particular time when we were praying for what we call in our every nation family, creative access nations. They're not nations that we can't get into and they're not nations that we're not going to, but we're gonna have to be creative 
and how we get into these nations. So we had a couple of pastors and their wives who pastor, co-pastor the churches together. They were praying on the stage and I began to ask the Lord, am I spiritually blind potentially? Do I have a blind spot to where I'm lacking passion and where my zeal may have waned? And I wanna give you a few quotes that came from these pastors as I sat with the voice, the spirit of God speaking to me through the testimony of our pastors. The first was Pastor Jackie and his wife, Lisa, who have been ministering in China for over 20 years. The question came to them like, are you scared to minister? Do you ever want to give up because your life is pursued for death in China if you're a vocal Christian? And he said this, Many think they believe in the gospel, but they don't. They believe in the benefit of the gospel, but they aren't bold. They don't walk in the power of the spirit. Pastor said this, when I lay down on my bed at night, I see myself laying in my coffin because I know I will see Jesus soon. I am as fearful as some of you, but being a Christian in China for 20 years, a new fear has grown, a fear of God. I want this fear to grow in me and take over all of the other fears. He said this, if you don't evangelize in China, you're safe and you can be a Christian, just not a real Christian because evangelism is required of the Christian and evangelism requires passion. He ended with this and this really got me. He said this, it's a discipleship honor to tell my kids that your dad is a pastor. I could be taken at any moment and you won't see me for a while but either Jesus is real or your dad is crazy. So I'm like, am I even a Christian? I mean, I, I, I mean, wow. Like I sat there with just the weight of the spirit on me. Do I pursue God with that passion? Do I evangelize telling my story, which should be intertwined for the believer with the story of Jesus? Do I tell my story with passion? I'm not scared of death. I'm mainly scared of what somebody will think about me. Am I pursuing God with that passion? Either Jesus is real or your dad is crazy. I was very, very challenged. The other set of pastor and wife that were up there, Pastor Rocky and Gemma, they're in Bangladesh. And they have a very unique call in ministry to those high up in terrorist organizations and the imam that lead those places. He was sharing a story with us of of a time where he had, he felt God telling him that he was supposed to witness to someone that was a bodyguard to someone very, very high in the terrorist organizations. And he said this, when he was leaving one morning, he said to his wife, please keep praying until I return. She didn't know where I was going. I snuck out of the house and met him. The leader was very rude and harsh. I was afraid, but told him, I mean, they don't have any time to waste. He told him, you will go to hell. Just straight up said, you will go to hell. I told him his fasting and ritual will do no good because you're gonna go to hell without Jesus. I then explained the scripture properly. His eyes were opened and he saw the truth. He got saved that day. And he is now working with us. He is one of our full-time staff. And he looked at all of us in the congregation and said, when you go, God goes. He challenged us in our faith. When you go, will you go, first of all, and know that when you go, God goes. This, this guy got saved. He's now, Christianity is contextualized in Middle Eastern nations properly. 
And this man is still serving in some of these organizations, but he's like, you know, under the radar Christian going in, consistently getting beaten, consistently getting imprisoned, consistently getting tortured and persecuted for his faith. He's also consistently trained to where he could kill somebody in under five minutes with his bare hands. But he says, God won't let me touch him. God won't let me touch him. He's only called me to speak the gospel truth to them. And many, many leaders in these organizations are getting saved. Again, I sat there going, I must be spiritually blind. Like something is not right in my heart. Something's not right when we allow our passion and zeal to get snuffed out so easily for the one who has laid his life down for us, for the one who has called us and equipped us and given us a place to live and minister. Do we potentially just sit in this room every single Sunday? It's just a checkbox. I've been to church. I have no relationship with the family. I have no understanding of the scripture. I have no connection to what's going on, but I've done my duty of going to church. I don't think that's what God has called us to. He's called us to passionate faith. And I was challenged in these moments. It was frightening to me as I listened. It was frightening to me that we can find ourselves so in love with God at one point and then in a state of hypocrisy soon after. It is frightening to me that we feel we can grow spiritually yet live blind and see our passion wane to the point of cheapening grace. Because Jesus did not die for us to live a life of cheap grace. Because grace is not cheap. Grace is costly to the one who gives it. It cost him everything. It cost him his life. To the Laodiceans, Jesus is telling them, you can't even see how wretched and poor and blind and naked that you are. And as I asked you earlier, might he be asking the same thing of you today? This point bleeds into our next one. What happens when we allow the world to lure us away from the things of God? Last and final point, self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency. Verse 18, I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, white clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed, and ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. You see, forgetting who we are is the result of not preaching the gospel to ourselves every day. Forgetting that what saved us is also needed to sanctify us. We are in desperate need of the salvation of Jesus every single day. Not just when we are initially brought into the family, but so that we can obey and live lives that he's called us to live. We will lean into what is comfortable and familiar and slowly find ourselves and our faith possibly completely gone when we live self-sufficient lives. Because when we're self-sufficient, pride takes over. The example from the scripture that I just read is this, and here's what it means. Jesus was saying to them, I know that you are leaning into your self-sufficiency, but you need gold refined in the fire because I am your treasure. I, Jesus, am your treasure, not the money and the prestige that's coming from all of these things that you can do with your hands. I am your treasure. Because see, this is what the listener knew. Their medical industry had developed and perfected an eye salve 
that was distributed or exported, if you will, to all of the surrounding areas. And it was bringing healing. It was bringing sight to those who couldn't see. It was bringing relief and comfort to those who had pain. But Jesus said to them, I want you to ask for ointment for your eyes so that you can truly see. You might have your dependence in this very thing, but I am the one who truly brings sight. You don't need to be leaning into this thing. You need to be leaning into me because you are blind without me. And their textile industry, when he said to them, you need white garments to cover your shameful nakedness, their textile industry had developed and protected a black wool that they could spin into beautiful garments. They also distributed and exported this thing to the towns around them. But he was saying, don't you dare put your sufficiency in this thing. Don't you lean into what you can do with your own hands. You need from me white garments purity and holiness that will clothe you so that you can see, so that you will know and not be wrapped up in your pride that your treasure, the one who makes you see, the one who clothes you is me, not yourself. When we become so self-sufficient that we allow our ego to control us more than the spirit, we find ourselves in the position of a Laodicean, a self-righteous sinner. And to quote my friend, Dr. Terry Reed from our church in Memphis, ego can easily be remembered as an acronym acronym for easing God out. Easing God out. As I mentioned earlier, it's not a direct assault or an attack that you can see coming. This is a slow leak of the things of God until we are left with self and selfishness is ugly. And selfishness refuses to recognize itself for what it is. It takes other people to point it out in our life. It takes other people. Our spiritual blindness, our self-sufficiency, our ineffectiveness, our indifference requires other people. It requires the family of God. It doesn't require the voices that agree with us all the time. It just tells us what we want to hear. We need to have people who point these things out. So how do we avoid these four things? How do we avoid our witness being ineffective, growing indifferent, being spiritually blind, or leaning in and being self-sufficient? He who has an ear, let him listen with listening ears. God says this, started the letter in verse 14. This is Jesus. Thus says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. Who is this speaking? Jesus, the amen, the one who has the last word. Who is this? Jesus, the true witness, the one whose example is pure and holy. Who is this? Jesus, the originator of God's creation. Not that he was created by God, but that he was with him before there ever was. This is Jesus. Our life is to exist of knowing him and following his example. It was Jesus speaking to them this appeal, repent, repent, turn. This is an invitation to life and hope. The judge is standing at the door, not to condemn, but it is the invitation to relationship and family. Listen to verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous and repent. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This is another scripture that is commonly misinterpreted. It is often thought of to be a a verse to encourage evangelism, but it has nothing to do with evangelism. Nothing. 
Jesus is not standing at the door and knocking on the unsaved person's heart in this passage. He's standing at the door and knocking on the heart of the believer. That's, what he, that's who he's talking to in Revelation 3. This is a verse of judgment. But he's saying, let me in. As his, and his judgment for the repentant one goes hand in hand, as I said, with mercy. This judgment ends with relationship. I'm standing here. Your part is to repent. My part is to come in and then we will sit down together. This is an invitation to relationship and family. And when we do this, as I close, verse 21, to the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Jesus makes us a co-heir of the kingdom. And this just blows my mind. Jesus is the true older brother. He purchases for us a place in glory through the shedding of his blood on the cross. He pays the debt that we could never pay by living a life that we could never live. And then we get the benefit of his sacrifice. That's glorious news this morning. His desire is that we conquer our indifference and effectiveness, our spiritual blindness and our self-sufficiency. He knows that we can't do this on our own. So he has made a way. His grace is sufficient for us, not self. I wanna leave you with this phrase as we have consistently done during this series. It's not about how you start, but how you finish. It's not about how you start, but how you finish. I wanna tell you a story as I end with uh, about my youngest daughter, Issy. She decided last year that she wanted to run cross country. Now, Issy is a sprinter. Cross country, successor, she is not. But she decided per the coach's instruction and advice that she run cross country so that she could stay conditioned and, and develop her skills. This one particular race she went to, there was over 700 participants. I drove her somewhere in South Carolina and her only goal was she not finished dead last out of like 240 something students. So I'm like, man, you can do this. You're not gonna finish dead last. I mean, you're gonna be able to finish. Let's just finish. So. I'm not a cross country runner. Cross country uh, race is 3.1 miles. I can't run the whole thing with her, but I could find myself in certain spots to be able to encourage her along the race. I went to the first one, she was doing good. I'm cheering her on. You can do this, Issy, you can do it. I get to the next spot and I'm like, huh, she should have been here by now, where is she? She should have been here by now. Took her a little bit longer to get there, cheer her on. And I placed myself at the final spot, about 400 meters left in the race. They were gonna come around this big bend of this field and they were gonna run through the finish line. Well, I mean, every participant is coming through. And I'm like, oh my goodness, she might finish dead last. And that is not her goal. But as I see her finally coming around the bend, her and about four people who are behind her to finish, I'm like, she can do it, she can do it. And as her face got closer to me, I'm like, oh my goodness, she is not okay. And listen, anytime we tell a story about God and we equate ourselves with God, it's gonna break down, okay? Because humanness is humanness. So insert myself into the story, but this is gonna um, somewhat encourage us in our relationship with God. As I see Issy come towards me and I can tell she wants to fall in my arms and quit. I'm like, no, you are not gonna quit. Don't you dare touch me. You cannot fall into my arms. And I'm like backing up from her. Like, no, 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 no. You are not gonna quit. You keep running, you got this. She's crying, she's snotting. She did not wanna finish this race. And I'm like, well, I'm not gonna hold you right now, but I guess I'll just have to run with you. 
and alongside you to finish. So I began to do this slow, like side gallop, like we can do this, like we got this. And she's running and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you got this, you go, you go, you go. And this he did finish to the cheers of just a few of her teammates who loved their other teammate enough to wait for her to finish. And did she cross the finish line? Absolutely. Did we look foolish? Absolutely. Did we draw attention to ourselves? Absolutely. But she finished the race with the ones who loved her cheering her on. And that is my challenge to you this morning, that you finish your race effectively, that you're not indifferent, that you have a passion and zeal that loves God, fully seeing who you are, leaning into the grace that is sufficient for you. And it takes all of us to do that. It takes all of us pointing out our blind spots to one another and loving each other in spite of, but encouraging each other towards who God has made us to be. So I'll leave you with these questions. When did you start to put your trust in yourself or in your good works? When did you forget the miracle of your salvation and lose sight of the depravity of your heart alongside the goodness of God? When did you start to put more trust in your own faith and knowledge than the object of that faith? When did you forget or where did you get off course? I'm inviting you today to repent, to turn from those places where you find yourself self-sufficient, that you would examine yourself in light of God, that we would exercise the faith it takes to lean back into our great God and Savior, the one who has rescued our soul from death that self brings. So would you stand as I pray and we begin to ready ourselves to sing. Nobody leave the room this morning. Nobody leave the room. Let's respond to this message. Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning grateful for what you've done for us. We come to you this morning believing that you have a call in our life that is, involves passion and zeal, that you have a call in our life that requires the one another's towards each other, that we love one another, bear with one another, forgive one another. God, that you've called us to run a race that requires us to live open and exposed before you, our great God and King, and before our brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for listening to the In Focus Church podcast with Pastor Brent Gerard. In Focus Church is a multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Evans, Georgia with a mission to love God, love people, and reach the world. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you are listening, and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at InFocusChurch. Church.